Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus to learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Welcome, you are listening to WF, w, WRF, <laughs> WRFL, Smooth. 88.1 Lexington, Kentucky, and this is Office Hours, like it is every Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m., sometimes not even 2 p.m. sharp, because right now it's not sharp, no. but uh, we're okay. <laughs> we're here, mm-hmm. and we're still going to give you one of the finest, high-quality entertainment shows that you will find anywhere across the dial. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm confident That's in that accurate, statement. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sarah, tell us what's cooking over there. Well, <laughs> over here, the, right over the, there. on the other side of the studio, which is not big. But um, uh, welcome back to more office hours. This week we have our guest Manuel Gonzalez, who's our solo guest. So we have an hour of just Manuel. So would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, I am a performance artist. Well, excellent. No, I'm not. <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about that. Oh, no, I'm just going to do my vi- my highly visual performance art piece on uh, the radio. Okay, yeah. For we, an hour. We can, we can, with costumes. We can explain it. Yeah. It's, it's riveting. I have, Interpretive dance. I have whole Foley artists working behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm Manuel Gonzalez. I am a newly hired faculty in the English department, creative writing faculty. I'm a fiction writer. A couple of years ago, I published a debut collection of stories called The Miniature Wife and Other Stories. And every time I'm on the radio and somebody says the title, they always say miniature. Really? Every every radio person I've ever talked to has called it miniature wife really? and other stories. <laughs> um, now I'm here in, in Lexington. I was in Austin, Texas, and now I am Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And you've been here, you came here this fall, yes. right? So this is your first semester. And this is really the first semester that the, the creative writing program has become a, kind of a freestanding Right, well, program, it's still within right? the English department, but we, uh, and it's right. always had a really strong undergraduate program, but this is the first, this is the inaugural year for the MFA mm-hmm. creative writing program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a graduate degree, and we're very excited mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. I bet. So you came from Austin, and where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in Texas, just north of Dallas, in a small town called Plano that was once the suicide capital of the world. (laughs) This was back when I was in elementary school. No, I thought it was really funny. Uh, When I was in third grade, we were the suicide capital of the world. When I was in college, I saw a Rolling Stone article saying that we were the black heroin capital of the world. Oh, wow. I mean, we are aiming for some good capital of the world (laughs) notoriety. What is it about Plano that has those kinds of of, uh, attractions to them? I'm not sure. I Well... The whole story is that Plano is a bastion of new Texas wealth and some conservative ideals and neglected children who have too much time, Mm. money, and the desire to rebel. Mm -hmm. And that leads to, I guess, both suicide potential and black heroin 
debauchery. Huh. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, is there any good like Plano, Texas-based movies? Then it seems like a one, oh, yeah. like you know. No, you know there hasn't been a good Plano, Texas-based movie. I'm. I can't even imagine what that would look like. <laughs> um, it's a dark movie. Yeah. Although I did live in Paris, Texas for about two years. Well, and there's there you the go. Vin Vendors. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great film. Which has nothing to do with Paris, Texas. Uh, we watched it before we moved to Paris, my wife and I. Uh, and we it all took place in the desert outside of L.A. and then in L.A. And the only Paris, Texas in the movie Paris, Texas is this sad Polaroid that uh, is it Harry Dean Stanton who yep. he's, he's yep. carrying it around and it's the saddest dream deferred symbol in the history of cinema I think mm. and uh, Paris Texas is also a very uh, uh, near and dear Lexington um, favorite because we are home of the Harry Dean Stanton festival really fifth year coming up uh, in May. Why, what is involved in the Harry Dean Stanton Festival? <laughs> All kinds of awesome programming around Harry Dean Stanton movies uh-huh. and other roles and stuff. And he, there has been, of course, um, guests who come to the street, like the main screenings at the Kentucky Theater for Q&As and awesome. stuff like that. Last year, Harry Dean was here. Really? Which is pretty amazing that because amazing. Yeah. he almost never leaves L.A., Right, um, but, but if you have a whole but, festival devoted well, to you, our 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 curator of the uh, Harry Dean Stanton Festival, the lovely Miss Lucy Jones, she has been trying to you know get him out every year and stuff, and you know every year he's like, oh maybe next year, maybe next year, maybe next year. Um, you know he's really up there in age, and he's pretty fragile, so the time felt right for him to finally that's great make it to one. But yeah, we've had lots of at the at the past ones. There's been a lot of guests um, this year. Um, the director Monty Hellman is going to be here for whatever the main. I, I haven't seen the details of um, all the lineup stuff for this year. And then, then also on Saturday night, there's also usually a musical component. Oh, cool! Uh, where mm. uh, at the Green Lantern, where like the one year they did the soundtrack to Repo Man. Um, oh. Last year uh, was um, I should know I played in it. So <laughs> I think, was it last year or two? Year, um, we did like a '60s mod set. Um, oh, cool. After we we played a a movie that I can't remember the name of at the moment, um, which was a a bit part that um, Harry Dean had in a uh, motorcycle gang movie with awesome. that uh, femme fatales kind of. You know, were a gang as well, and mm-hmm. they took out the other gangs and stuff. So that's awesome. I bet that there has to be some cool grungy garage band called the Harry Dean Stantons, mm-hmm. and they should. If you're listening, <laughs> members of the Harry Dean Stantons, there's probably time to still get you on the bill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not that. It's a call to action. Somebody really. should start that band. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let Sarah go more into talking to him, but no, <laughs> in the meantime, I'll get more information on the web about Harry Stanton Festival 2015 awesome. that I can come back and talk, talk about. We'll, we'll just carry on from that. Have yeah. there been any, any local things that you've been 
interested in or surprised by or been really like swept away by um, since well, moving here? Yeah, we uh, well, we love the the countryside. We keep driving out, especially now that um, it's starting to be nicer weather. And I have friends coming in the next two weekends. I have two different groups of friends, and so we are going to Keenland it up, oh, as yeah. is the tradition. But also, we really like, I don't know, we found a lot of cool, small things going on here in town. We like the whole national boulangerie little outfit. Uh, we've gone there a few times uh, to eat and to have... Uh, drinks. We really like the um, the downtown uh, Saturday farmers market. Yeah. is really amazing. Yeah, that's pretty good. It uh, puts a lot of other larger city farmers markets to shame. Mm-hmm. I feel, and we are excited about things we keep seeing that are on the horizon, like the those guys who got the big grant to convert the old Greyhound yes, bus station yes. into a public market mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. We haven't been to the night market yet, but we hear that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So we want to check that out. Yeah, yeah that's an exciting project. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, in that, that part of town, there's so many places like that that are just kind of ripe for for right. change, development, whatever right. the case might be, for the use of the community, of course. So, yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see that stuff happening. So you moved here and have been teaching and writing. So how? What are you working on right now? Uh, well, so a if couple of things. Care, if you don't oh, mind yeah, sharing, no, no, I don't mind sharing. I um, so I have a novel that's coming out around this time next year, and I uh, just received the manuscript with all the copy edits Excellent. in it. And so I'm going through checking all the copy edits and seeing if the, it's. I really. I know a lot of writers don't like the copy editing process, and mm-hmm. I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but you, sub- you submit your manuscript, they, you edit it with your editor, and once everybody's like, this is the final version, we love this book, we're going to move forward, they send it to a copy editor, and the copy editor just goes with a fine-toothed comb over every sentence, every reference. Uh, I find that in this, in this book, I am constantly putting further when I should be putting farther. Oh, wow. Uh, And she is expertly catching every one of those. I also uh, was informed by the copy editor that the uh, Patagonian ice sheet has not been in existence for a very long time, that actually it's split into the uh, southern Patagonian ice field and the northern Patagonian ice field. And I had no idea uh, about any of that. I just threw Patagonian ice sheet into this story that I'm telling for giggles right. um, <laughs> and I uh, like there's a reference to the year 2000 in and she caught the inconsistency that actually things had to have well she was like in another part of the story you say this event happened in 1993 and it had to happen around the same time as this thing that you referenced 2000 plus looking at all the movies that the character references they would fit better with a 1993 you know reconcile to make work and i'm like oh that's really nice catch that's really great. I mean, because those things. crazy reading. I mean, well, yeah, it's intense. really. I can't imagine. Yeah, that. I, I have no idea how they're. They have so much esoteric knowledge and also mm-hmm. just such good 
attention spans because mm-hmm. I can't pay attention to like those small details very well. And when I'm thinking about a novel, it's over 300 pages in a manuscript, and I don't remember that on page 102 I say 2,000, but right. on page 225. I very clearly say that it all happened in 1993. So it's amazing, and thank goodness that there's somebody who's willing to patiently comb through everything like that. Yeah. So that's what I'm, I'm going through and mm-hmm. making all those changes so that they, they can uh, send it to, like, get the cover design and all that exciting stuff. Um, and that book is called The Regional Office is Under Attack, and it's got an exclamation mark after attack. So I'm trying to always... The regional office is under attack. Right. <laughs> I don't know if it ever comes across. <laughs> and then otherwise, I'm just working on different stories and um, starting another novel that I'm, I've been toying with for a while. Terrific. So. Great. We'll, we'll get, some, get into some more of those a little bit. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with more Office Hours. WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington with Dublin Blues, which was... Per request from our guests, because we like to appease our guests and have some of the music that they enjoy on on the show. Um, and while we were at break, I also did my little bit of research on Harry Dean Stanton Fest 5. And uh, so Monty Hellman is the director of Ride in the Whirlwind, which Harry Dean uh, co-starred with uh, Jack Nicholson, who Jack also co-produced and I think might have even... Uh, yeah, co-produced it. I'm not sure if he had any writing credit. But, yeah, so uh, Monty Hellman. Also, I forgot he had uh, directed one of my favorites, uh, Cockfighter, um, which is an incredible movie, Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton and Ed, ba- Ed Begley Jr. Um, so Monty Hellman will grace us. Uh, the festival is May 29th through May 31st of this year. And they're still working out the details of all the rest of the programming through the weekend, but the main thing is Riding the Whirlwind, which will be the feature at the main feature at um, the Kentucky, and uh, Monty Hellman will be there for the Q&A. That sounds great. So uh, there you have it. More Lexington's happenings. That's right. All trace back to the connection that Manuel lived in Paris, Texas, right. where it was. So this is how yeah. we how we got. Oh, sorry. This is how we got into the the, into the, the degrees of separation are still very slight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also, there is a Paris just south of here. Yes. Yeah. yeah of course. We're surrounded by um, European cities around here. Versailles. <laughs> <There's> Versailles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Athens. Athens. <laughs> is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. You have to say Athens. Athens, Boonesboro Road. <laughs> Wow. If you say Athens, people will be like, hmm, you ain't from here, are uh-huh. you? It's, it's important to distinguish that <laughs> based on those things. Do, do, where you grew up, where you lived, have, do those those kinds of things contribute to what you're writing? Do you write about place a lot? I, uh, I don't write specifically about place, but the place is influential, and it shows up usually long after I have left the place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of the stories featured Texas locations. Yeah. Um, the novel has both New York and Texas in it as locales, and um, so yeah, maybe one day I will write also about Kentucky mm-hmm. and Harry Dean Stanton. One day. One day. <laughs> <laughs> and you you've lived in New York. Yeah, I lived in New York uh, for just about four years. It's where I went to graduate school mm-hmm. to get my MFA. Um, 
And before that, I lived in Boston. We figured it out, my wife and I, once, where <clears throat> once we left New York, we had moved 11 times in 12 years. Oh, no. <laughs> That's so painful. And sometimes within the same city, but uh -huh. still, it was, we don't understand why we keep picking up our stuff and shifting it over to some other similarly <laughs> shaped house. You have to be pretty good at moving by that no, point. No, we're really bad. Are you? No, yeah, we're awful. <laughs> and it always ends up still where you like you start off very meticulous and every box has a theme of like room or objects and shapes. And I guess maybe what we should do next time is just box things by color. It couldn't be any, <laughs> couldn't be any less chaotic than what we do. And, but then by the end, you're like just throwing crap yeah. into whatever <laughs> boxes you have left over, and you're like, well, sure, this curtain rod will go fine with this space heater, and also <laughs> my daughter's baby blanket. Yeah. What do we label this one? Never going to open. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just move it to the next house. Just might as well just ship it to the next place. I know. I just think uh -huh. of moving as, as a time to purge everything, or I imagine that I would be purging lots right. of things. So some people who move a lot, I think, oh, they must not have as, like have held on to all their junk that I hold on well, to. Well, we purge. And then it's still, there's, well, we have two kids, so there's never enough purging that can happen. But we are also just awful about... <laughs> Not purging enough. Yeah. Well, we feel like we've purged a lot. And then over the next year or two, we accumulate again. Yeah. Or we didn't purge nearly as much as we could have. Mm -hmm. We didn't even move our bo my books. I had maybe 15 boxes of books that I um, packed up in our car and drove to my parents' house. Because, you know, you have a budget with which to move. Yeah. And... A national move we'd never done before, and everybody who came and gave us a quote looked at those boxes like they salivated at how much <laughs> they were going to be able to eke out of us because of how little space the books take up, but how much weight they contribute. I was like, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get me there. So I boxed them all up and took them to my parents, and then um, once I got here, I just when we settled, I just had them all shipped, and they were so much cheaper to just really? ship. Like FedEx ground was You're like kidding. maybe a third of what it would have cost for me to put them on a truck. That's incredible. Yeah, it was weird. So they all just came at once? They all just came at once. That's pretty great. They came here to my office and I was like, I guess I probably should have just had them sent home. Because <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to need all these books. I'm a writer. Right. And, and then I was like, I want these books at my house, actually. So I carted three quarters of them back. <laughs> Then you realize that when you're in the office, you almost have never time to like look at a book. Right, I know that's the thing. In the office, yeah, I'm, I never really you're have time to look you. at. Uh, they're all like set pieces. Mm -hmm. um, right. This yeah. is my office. My, my books. My wife feels like I have done poor, poorly with my office, and that I look maybe a step above a graduate student's office, but <laughs> probably not. And I'm like, well, what gave it away? The weird. Mork and Mindy Mork figure, <laughs> or the fact that most of the shelves are empty and mm. it's a weird mess. I have a lot of chairs, though. Do you, you guys ever want to come and sit in my office? It's a good I have about, I have, a, I have about six chairs. Okay. Oh. I don't know why. Hmm. At a table, a round table. <laughs> a round table in your office? Yeah. Wow. Well, I have nothing else in there, so there's, I guess there's room. 
It's like a, a dining room. Uh, you're, it's a, you're, you are just waiting to be the host of a roundtable discussion. Right. Is what you're telling me. I am. You should set I've a had series. A couple, I've had a couple of ad hoc, like, just roundtable discussions. Um, also, I'm just, I guess, bad at office managery. Hmm. Um, you know, we we have somebody that can probably take care of that for you in AMS. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, There's hug, a lot of folks. Sh- there should be a whole like Bravo TV show, <laughs> Office Makeover, <laughs> or like that old TLC like um, trading house space. trading spaces. Yeah. That uh, got weird though towards the end. That did show, it? yeah, we stopped started, watching it after a while. Yeah, that's, but, but there, we can do this. We can make this happen. We have a whole. Uh, Space and facilities team, and they love to pick out um, uh, furniture and carpet and chairs and and things that look mod or retro or whatever you want. Oh, yeah. Oh, I should give them like Don Draper's office Uh, and say, This is what I'm going for. Right. Right. I'm I'm just barely falling short. Just a few touches is all it needs. Just clear out the people next door. Give me that space too. You know, a sitting room. I'm just I would be disappointed though if this this Manuel's round table idea dissolved. If you yeah, I really want you to have a series, a round table series in your office. Well, um, you know, I don't want to get too far but we're also the I'm also the head of the podcast you know, branch of ANS as well, oh. since this is one of our podcasts as well. But we could certainly have a podcast series from your office. That would be funny. Um, it'd be like it'd can, be like Troy and Abed in the morning. Yeah, absolutely from Community. And you, we'll give I you love f- that. That's I mean, we'll great. give you free reign over you know content. Oh, I would love that. Actually. <laughs> we uh, we will sign some deals. We we'll put some wheels on this, and we will. I like it. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. Deals on some deals is what you we need will do. A, you need a cup with whatever name of this this podcast series. Yeah, I mean, so we, well, we can brand things for you as well. Oh, I love swag. Yeah, yeah there's a lot swag of A&S up. swag. That's, I'm, Brian has a ton of it. And I'm always like, where'd that shirt come from? Where'd you get that cup that says A&S on it? Hopefully the dean is not listening right now because he's probably like, you know, spending like, <laughs> Brian, why are you spending all this money on the air? <laughs> Um, I bet that we can do my podcast though on the cheap. Yeah, Maybe absolutely. Like, <laughs> absolutely. I think probably for absolutely. like a two hundred thousand dollar right. monthly right. budget. Right. I mean, yeah, you're only, and a makeover. We're only going to like fly guests like continentally. Right. Right. I mean, right. we're not going to like with you know, a connection. Of, <laughs> you know, not nothing direct. <laughs> no. Yeah. Gotta we'll save the and pennies. Per diem for meals, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So modest meals. Yeah. <laughs> I will need a. I will need my own special apartment on campus. <laughs> I, I believe that's still your office. <laughs> oh, I, I guess then. I guess we're good then. <laughs> well, we ventured off track a little bit, which is fine. Um, we'll take another short break, and we'll come back with more office hours, and who knows what will happen then. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Back to our regular scheduled program. <laughs> A riveting discussion about my office. That's right. And all the things it could be. <laughs> Welcome back to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. I'm your host, Sarah Schutze, and we're here with the lively guest, Manuel Gonzalez from English. So we've talked about a lot of things here and there. But we've run the gamut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we, uh, we still have half a show to go, so who knows what could happen. <laughs> but... Um, um, I uh, I'm curious about your writing and how you you understand yourself as a writer or kind of the voice that you have when you write. Like, what's the do you have a character in your in your writing? Um, I don't necessarily have a character that I always go back to, but I do 
have, I think, a sensibility. It's kind of weird. Uh, some dark humor is thrown in. Mainly, though, I write to all the things that are just concerns for me. And by concerns, I don't mean like, oh, I'm very concerned about, but like things that I just always think about, mm -hmm. always go back to. Um, and that's where a lot of my story ideas and the novel ideas I have come up. Um, and there's, there's a lot of like fantastical elements in them and science fictional elements as well, because that's what I really kind of grew up on. My dad loved those really bad sci-fi movies uh -huh. and horror movies. Um, one of my favorites is Day of the Triffids, which is a weird movie about this alien invasion, but there are plants that can get up and move. And I think, if I remember it, and I'm sorry to spoil this for all of you who are about to go watch it, <laughs> salt water is their downfall. And oh. I'm like, the world is 75% of salt water, and you guys were really dumb. Yeah. To That's why I've got to be strategic, you know what I mean? Oops. <laughs> like, you got you to pick it. You should have picked a different planet, my friend. Somebody should, somebody should remake that movie, and it should be like some action hero with like a shotgun full of salt water, I guess, and saying... You picked the wrong planet, <laughs> and then like everybody just unloads on them with their salt water. Um, so all of that kind of finds its way into my work. But then also I have a strong like literary background. I was an English major, and I like to read uh, classics, but also a lot of great contemporary fiction that's more serious or um, you know more realism based. And so a lot of that also comes into play. Um, when I write, but and when I, I don't really set out with an idea of what I was, what I'm going to do mm -hmm. when I start. Mainly, I just a what if situation occurs to me, or a character in a in a weird circumstance occurs to me, and I just start following that to see where it goes, and I just try to make myself feel whatever emotion is going on. Like if I want it to be funny. I try to make it funny enough that I think it's funny mm -hmm. or weird or unsettling. I try to creep myself out. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of is how I have my sensibility kind of in line. Mm -hmm. And so I think you can see a lot of that, and it's pretty consistent through my work. Um, but, yeah, that's that's usually where Like, I have a story where I have a character who's stuck on a plane that's circling Dallas for 20 years. <laughs> and great. that idea came to me because I was flying. I took maybe like four, three business trips and one just trip on my own in the span of like three weeks. And I was, I felt like that's I was on lot. the plane all the time. Yeah. And that's what I thought to myself. I was walking down the gangplank. I was like, ah, I feel like I'm on the plane all the time. <laughs> and then I was like, what if I was on the plane all the time? And that's where that, you know, where there was a character who actually was just stuck on a plane mm -hmm. for until he was eventually going to die, I guess. But so that's usually how things happen. I love I love weird writing, and and you know um, that's my own aesthetic, my own interest as a reader. And I love short stories because they are often so weird, and they can be so weird because they can kind of explore whatever. And right. it seems like like a lot of times authors are like, "What about this weird possibility?" Like you're talking yeah. about, just and it's almost like an experiment. Mm -hmm. How is um. Writing a novel different for you from some of these the stories that you've written in the miniature wife. Well, uh, the novel 
I think when I first started writing it, one, I sectioned it off in this weird way so that you had these characters who had their very specific narratives that I wove together mm -hmm. into this larger narrative. And the story behind the regional office is under attack is that the regional office is a front for this super secret, uh, super powered female spy team that's battling the forces of the darkness. And then one day it's on a, under attack. Um, and so I had all, but I wanted to play with the peripheral characters, uh, like who, not the main, like none of the actual superpowered assassin women are featured as characters. It's like oh, interesting. the office manager of the regional office and uh, this young woman who's like recruited by the opposing side who are attacking them, and she's trying to find her own way, and you know so. Uh, and one of the characters has a mechanical arm, and it's. I, it, but so I gave them each their own narrative lines as if they were. I was writing their own short stories, and they were woven together. And that's how I got through, like, the first couple of drafts. And then I was, you know, my editor was like, these are great, but they feel like you have put together a lot of different short stories. And mm -hmm. then I had to figure out how to break them up and make it feel more fluid and more like a novel and less like these disparate pieces pushed together. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, but I tricked myself into writing the full manuscript <laughs> by saying, oh, I'm just writing these short little narratives that just kind of like short stories and this is how it's going to work and it's going to be magic. And it wasn't magic, but it got me closer to where I needed to go. Um, but the biggest difference is when you have a short story, you can hold the, I can hold the whole thing in my mind. Yeah. Like, what is going on in the short story, how it's operating. And so if something's not working, it's pretty easy to figure out where it's not working. Or if somebody says, you know, you need to work on this part or this character, it's, there's not a whole lot for me to dive into to figure out where the problem is. But mm -hmm. with a novel, I knew, I had vague senses of how the world was a little bit too difficult to get into or to understand immediately, or like this pacing was a little slow, but I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. I didn't know where. I didn't know where I had to go to fix any of these problems because it's such a... so much bigger. I didn't have all of it just in my head and easily accessed. Um, so, did, yeah. Did you have any readers who read aside from your editor and those sorts of the people who were you know, like an agent and stuff, did you have friends who read the whole thing in different versions or yeah, colleagues? Really early on, I had a couple of friends, um, one who, one of whom was a former student and the other uh, oh, just cool. a really good friend of mine who is a, just a great reader and a very fast reader. Um, and that was before we sold it, so um, it's changed drastically since then. But yeah, I, I don't often send when I when I just got out of graduate school and when we were first living in Texas I was sharing a lot of my work with my uh, former like grad school colleagues mm -hmm. and we are still all in great touch but it, it's rare that I send them new work because I always feel like everybody has so much that they are already trying to do mm -hmm. um, that that if they reciprocated even and sent me their work, which I would be, on the face of it, happy to read and give them comments on, I know that I would also be bad at being able to, to respond as, in as little time as they would need yeah, me to respond. Right. Um, and so I just, now I have people who I work with who, res 
that's their job. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't. I never feel bad right. sending stuff to my agent or sending stuff to my editor mm -hmm. uh, or even former editors because they are professional readers and responders, and so they're really they're really good at it. They're much better than I would be or any of my my friends. Yeah, <laughs> and their purpose is maybe different than your colleagues or your friends right. in the way that yeah. they read it. Yeah, it's more specific to yeah. the outcome. Although I bet that my that both my agent and my editor would prefer it if I let people read stuff at least once because sometimes I'll just write a thing mm -hmm. and I'll be like well I wrote I did it that's here you <laughs> you look at it now <laughs> what do you think because uh, I like to get things just off my desk mm -hmm. like I write something I can't think about it anymore until it's off my desk right. and I don't even generally I don't even need somebody else to respond just the idea of me looking at it through their eyes is enough t for me to find all the things that are not working. Mm -hmm. And then you can move on and to the I next can, thing. Yeah, I can fix that or then move on to the yeah. next thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's take a short break. We're at the one of the final home stretch moments. So <laughs> that, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That, well, now I'm, that whole, I was just um, half daydreaming as I was rubbing my eye from like allergies or something. I don't know. But I was also listening as well at the same time. Sure, sure you were. But now I have a now Boston I have a, your allergy haze. Now I have a short story idea for a really um, for a professional really slow proofreader. Um, oh, and like yeah. he'll get back to me. He's like, so those first four pages. Um, let me go over each little thing <laughs> that I think is just wrong. And like he like three weeks later, he's like, all right, well I'm on page thirteen now. And so <laughs> just like it'll like just break it down really like slowly and kind of like maniacally on you. Yeah, so. you should write it and send it to Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will slowly respond. Exactly. It'll it'll play itself out in the reading itself and kind of it's be. Life imitating art, imitating life. Mm -hmm. Oh, and we can like we can do the whole thing, <laughs> like in silence, on the radio. Oh, that's deep. Like yeah. every once in a while, you'll hear my pencil scratch across the a page. page turn, yep. a page so, turn, a sigh, a sip of something. Something has been marked. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we can have commentators. Yeah, <laughs> like in tennis. <laughs> we back momentarily oh, on office hours. That's right, back to the studio, WRFL 88.1. Excellent choice. That was uh, Monty Python with novel writing. That was lovely. I, I think that's next week's show, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll be back with Manuel and his new novel, and Brian will be the commentator. We'll have, a, we'll have color commentary. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to do color commentary on, as I look over someone's shoulder as they write. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this is a good plan. And you're laughing, but I think we're up. This is this is what we're doing. I hope you're not busy next week. At no, time. no, I'm, Excellent. I'm around. Okay, good. So if you're just um, catching up, we're with Manuel Gonzalez talking about writing in Plano, Texas, and lots of other things today. For our last few minutes of office hours, it's hard to believe it's almost at its end. Um, tell us what were some main turning points in your in your writing career some something or a turning point where you know things just really felt like it was different for you as a writer uh well so there was uh so there are a few i guess where things felt different or i felt like things were moving well or poorly um <laughs> after uh <clears throat> so the first 
semester of grad school, I was very excited. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I had spent maybe two and a half years running a pie company back in Austin, and now I was That's in... Cool. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah. yeah. And I was, in, I was in New York now and uh, going to do this thing that I wanted to do for a while but had never figured out how to do. Um, my idea of how to be a writer when I was living in Austin after graduating was to hang out and not have a job uh, and just read my friend's New Yorkers, and <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> so this was like, suddenly I was like, oh good, I'm going to get the handbook. Um, and uh, and I found, like, well, what I found when I first arrived is that I, and I volunteered to write, the, to submit the first story of our workshop, and uh, what I always tell students is that I got there and I submitted my story, I was very excited about it, and then I came back and they were like, yeah, the thing about this story is that there are no scenes in it. Oh. And I was like, what's a scene? <laughs> <laughs> Handbook, <laughs> entry number one. <laughs> and, so, and so, the you know, even I started from very humble beginnings. Um, but what I found when I was in that first semester of workshop is that I was writing to the workshop. Mm-hmm. You know, I was trying to write things that I thought the workshop would be impressed by or would comment, you know, favorably on, and not until the second semester. And, you know, they did. They, as I started, I submitted work, and it had scenes, and they were, like, responding to it. But the faculty, uh, Ben Marcus, was always, he could always see through whatever I was trying to do. And <laughs> oh, no. uh, he's a great writer. He's a great uh, instructor. But he, he, I could tell that he was, he was the lone voice of dissent in everybody else's like, very favorable comments on like, the final story I submitted for his class. And, um, and even I felt like I knew. I was like, this is not. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and then the first story I started writing for the second semester... I had this weird idea, and the story, I never able, I was never able to make it work, work the way I wanted it to, but I had this idea that um, a narrator uh, had gotten the idea that he and his wife communicated their sexual desires based on the clothes that they wore. Oh, interesting. Um, and he had, he developed this whole system of what certain clothing meant, like, mm-hmm. came up with, like... The whole like what's a turtleneck? Yeah, the turtleneck. <laughs> well, it's like Not it's probably nothing. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, leave nothing, me alone. Yeah, nothing sexy is happening with that. And that, <laughs> and that this whole system like spilled over into like it went beyond just like their sexual desires and and is like every communication was given through the clothes that they wore, except for he was just really n- nuts and she didn't understand what he was doing and he'd stopped talking to her for two years and she finally left him and I uh, I was really enjoying that story writing it and I was like this is cool this is weird and I was like is it too weird maybe I should do something and I shifted halfway through to a more traditional hmm. like storyline and in class and this was like a big turning point everybody was like the first half of this was really cool like, it was so interesting and it was unlike anything that you've given us and it was unlike anything that we've ever read before and then it kind of just I don't know it fell off it became something we'd all seen and it was you know it's good writing but it's not you know it's not as you should have sounds like that first part was what I liked the most like I was making myself laugh and I was making myself feel like bad for this poor 
schlub <laughs> um, who was completely clueless. So, uh, so that was you know that's when I that's why I always say you know you are your first reader. You are the person that you should be writing for. Like if you can't make yourself laugh, if you can't make yourself feel weird or creeped out by a story that you're trying to creep others out, um, how can you expect uh, any stranger to just interpret the black and white symbols that are on the page into some real three-dimensional thing? Mm -hmm. And if you can't, then you need to find a way to. I mean, you can't expect... I can't expect strangers to be compelled by things that I am personally bored by. Yeah. Then you're... Must always be trying to challenge yourself, I guess, to to be weirded out by yourself or grow. Oh, it's not out a challenge. It's, it's not, not a challenge. Oh, that's good. Well, and I don't weird myself out, but I think it's funny. But it weirds other people out. Uh-huh. I, I guess, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's a bit of advice that it sounds like you share with your students and yeah. you learned from your own experience. What else is is something that you you like to tell students who want to kind of follow in this path and and be a professional writer? Well, what I also, uh, um, a lot of things, I guess. You can sign up for my class next semester. There you go. Um, Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be teaching a 207 and a 507. Um, no, that's uh, 207 a- is the introduction to uh, the workshop, uh, and then 507 is an advanced workshop. Okay. For, and they're fiction both fiction writing. Okay. Fiction writing. Um, but one of the things that I also tell students um, is that, uh, well, I always tell uh, especially high school students that uh, when they write, they shouldn't think. They should just write because thinking gets in the way of writing. And then their teachers always give me weird looks. <laughs> I also tell them uh, good writers borrow and great writers steal. And the teachers, when I, they're, they're like, they're stealing from Wikipedia. And I'm like, well, you got to steal from better sources. Right. <laughs> be, um, a, be a selective thief. Yeah, be, yeah. A, be, a, be a better thief. You're right. Um, uh, what's... Let's see, one of the things that I like to bring up, because um, you often hear, like, uh, write what you know, mm-hmm. and I, a lot of people interpret this very differently, uh, and I, the way I interpret it is, you, it's not that you can't write outside of, like, I can write more than just growing up in Plano, Texas, or I can write more than just a guy who owned a pie company in Austin, Texas, um, but what I what you know are all the emotional highs and lows of all the things that you've gone through. Like, uh, you've mm-hmm. lived a life, you have emotional highs, you have uh, pride, you have fall before, after pride, you have heartbreak, you, you can take these emotional truths that you know and you can put them over other characters and other actions and circumstances. Uh, the writer Tarari Jones, who's a great writer, she said, if you've been stuck on an elevator for 30 minutes, you can write about being stuck in a space station for three days <laughs> because the anxiety is the same, just ex- you know, increased, mm-hmm. but you, the kernel is there. That is the thing that you know. And so don't write f- falsely about the emotions or how experiences affected you, but that doesn't mean that you can't also write about you know, going to Portugal if you've never been to Portugal. Right, right. I mean, if you say everything wrong about Portugal, that <laughs> might, might be in the... That, uh, but then, like, there's a writer, Raymond Rousseau, who uh, was part of the French Nouveau movement, and he wanted to write about Africa, but then he took a, he chartered a boat to take him to Africa, and he got to the coast, and he was like, oh, I don't think I really want to get off my boat. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so he spent like months on that boat, never touching Africa, and wrote this phenomenal, weird, weird novel about Africa that's not about Africa. But and he just makes up things that have no basis in reality. And then you look at Franz Kafka's uh, America, and he's got the Statue of Liberty with a sword in her hand instead of the torch. I mean, there's nothing that says you can't mess with reality. Mm-hmm. And Just write about Madagascar. Out. People haven't been there, really, so right. what are they going to know? Well, everybody, if you write about Madagascar, though, you will face up against everybody who already has the Disney movies in their right, mind. Right, right, right. So there'll be a lot of disappointment if Thanks. the animals don't talk. Thanks, Disney. Yeah, once again. Once again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for screwing with everything. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for being here. Sure, it's been my a, lot, a great. You've been a wonderful guest. I hope you'll come back. Oh yeah, talk to us again another time. So, um, thank you all for listening for yet another fascinating conversation here on Office Hours on eighty-eight point one WRFL. Radio Free Lexington. Thanks, Brian Connors Minky, our board man. Sure thing. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Thanks guys. everyone. Thanks. Farewell. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sand You, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.